Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhone. Sweet Spot is an app. It's a simple way to curate and share your favorite experiences with family and friends. Whether you're documenting a recent vacation or you're keeping track of your favorite restaurants or you're sharing a list of your city's essential must-see museums, Sweet Spot for iPhone is built for you. You can use the app in a variety of ways. You can follow friends, you can follow family, you can follow your favorite musicians, your favorite actors, whoever. And then when building your own curations, you can pull in photos from your Instagram account, from your Facebook, and you can pull in locations from Google Maps. And then you use tags and text to tell a story. From there, you share these curations on your social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, Google+, you name it. And SweetSpot is a little bit different from other apps in that it wants you to be thoughtful. It wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments. Oh, one more thing. It's free. You can download SweetSpot for iPhone for free right now over on the App Store. This is an app. You can download it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a podcast involving the narrative arts. This is something you can listen to while doing other things. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. Uh, I'm sitting here in Los Angeles talking into this microphone, and I'm very pleased to have Tim O'Connell on the program today. He's an editor of books uh, over there in New York City. He works at Vintage uh, slash Anchor slash Knopf slash Pantheon. Have I said that correctly? He's a hyphenate. He edits for a, a variety of imprints, all in the same building, if that makes sense. And uh, many of you out there in the literary community and in the uh, in the alt-lit universe, perhaps, might know that he edited Tao Lin's novel Taipei, uh, perhaps most notably, which uh, I believe published last summer. So it's always nice to have editors on the show. I feel like it's a nice change of pace and a nice uh, perspective on uh, the process, as it were. And Tim and I are going to be talking momentarily. Uh, before I uh, begin... I thought I would uh, talk about death and the weirdness of existence. I haven't mentioned this to anybody except my wife, uh, but like a, a few, just a few days ago, I was walking through Los Angeles. I was on my way uh, up into the hills to go for a hike, 
and uh, I was just walking through a neighborhood and there was an ambulance out in front of this apartment building and I had my headphones on sort of in my own world and there were there were a lot of people like walking through this neighborhood up towards the hiking trail it's the way it is in this neighborhood and so there you know the, the point is that there were lots of people on the sidewalks there was a pedestrian traffic people with their earbuds in people on their way somewhere and I looked over to my left and uh, paramedics were wheeling on a gurney a large elderly man out of his uh you know his home or his apartment and putting him in this ambulance, and I noticed that he was shirtless. Uh, he was uh, he had a plastic bag over his face, and there was a paramedic giving him chest compressions. And just as I looked over, one of his arms like limply fell out of the gurney. It was sort of bluish, and uh, I just kept walking, as did a lot of other people, many of whom like didn't even pay attention to this. I don't even know. It was so strange. If you can imagine having uh, like music pouring into your ears through headphones and you're not expecting to see anything of this nature and then you kind of look to your left and you can't hear it, but you can see it and it's this fleeting thing and then you keep walking and suddenly you're like up in the hills, there's all these people, everybody's alive, everybody's vibrant and you're like, I think I just saw somebody die. So there's, you know, what do you do with that? I felt like I said, I said like a quiet prayer. I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I saw that. You know, I don't know the guy, but I felt like kind of a dick for not like stopping or something. So, uh, there's that. And then there's just like the, the weirdness of life. Like there he goes. That's the end for him probably. And eventually it'll be the end for all of us. And, uh, just to tie this back into something a little bit, uh, cheerier though. I don't know if that's the right adjective, but something a little bit more germane, I have been reading over at vice.com a series of articles by Tao Lin, one of Tim O'Connell's authors, about uh, Terrence McKenna, the late uh, great psychedelic uh, philosopher, scholar, whatever you want to call him, uh, but one of the better speakers ever and uh, just a brilliant mind and a very interesting uh, body of work that he put together before he died of brain cancer. And... uh, so anyway, Tao's been writing a series of articles over advice about Terrence McKenna, the life and work of, and I was reading one this week involving DMT, the uh, psychedelic uh, spirit molecule. That's what they call it, I guess. DMT, it's a psychedelic. And you, you smoke it, and then, uh, I've never done this, but you smoke it, and you trip for, what is it, like 15 minutes? It's a brief experience, and once it's over, it's like over. So it's this really, but the, the 15 minutes that you're, you're in it is supposedly, uh, just completely astonishing. So I'm reading this thing, uh, and, uh, you know, Tao is describing, uh, this guy named Rick Strassman, who I believe published a book called DMT, the spirit molecule, which would then, I believe was made into a documentary film of the same name, though I can't be a hundred percent sure. And, uh, he did all these trials where he gave DMT to people and he monitored their response and, uh, you know, what does it say? You know, the, the trials resulted in an unexpectedly high number of encounters with entities in a seemingly freestanding, independent level of existence. Uh, Strassman wrote that he was, quote, neither intellectually nor emotionally prepared for the frequency with which contact with beings occurred in the studies, uh, nor the often utterly bizarre nature of these experiences. So uh, Tao then goes on to relate that uh, one of these uh, people in uh, Rick Strassman's, you know, study was this guy named Ken. 
And uh, he, d- he did the DMT, and then it says Ken settled down at the five-minute point but grimaced and shook his head. Within a couple more minutes, he took off his eye shades and stared straight ahead. His pupils remained large, uh, so they waited for him to come down further. At 14 minutes, looking shaken but keeping some composure, he started talking. And here's what he said. There were two qu- – and, and I quote <laughs> – There were two crocodiles on my chest, crushing me, raping me anally. I didn't know if I would survive. First, I thought I was dreaming, having a nightmare. Then I realized it was really happening. So, you know, you should read these things over advice. And I don't mean to uh, minimize uh, the importance of the work of uh, Terrence McKenna. I really think there's something to it. I might be in the minority, but I really do think there's something to it. But it scares the shit out of me. Uh, when I read stuff like that, <laughs> because part of the whole uh, DMT thing is that it's naturally occurring. It occurs, this this chemical or this molecule occurs in our bodies. And uh, what is it, the pineal gland? I don't know. I, I can't remember. I, I, my brain isn't working, but it's in your brain, the pineal gland. And I think that uh, DMT is produced there, if I'm recalling correctly. And uh, there is some belief or some people theorize that this, this molecule or this, uh, neurochemical or whatever is produced at certain times in our lives of high stress or at the moment of death or whatever. And so I'm like, okay, so at the moment of death, you get this big flood of DMT and then you're getting anally raped by crocodiles. Is that what I'm headed for? Sort of haunting me. I don't want to be afraid of this. I want to transition, you know, like I want to be mellow or, uh, you know what I'm saying? Well adjusted about this. It's an adventure. It's a transition. Death is an illusion, right? I'm not going to run into a couple of crocodiles with, uh, the intent to rape me. <laughs> so I don't know, uh, you know, this is a really weird monologue, but this is uh, something that's been on my brain. I, I can't get that old man off of my mind. Like, what am I supposed to do with that visual? How am I supposed to process that? Is there an appropriate way to recognize? Is this an appropriate way to recognize by talking about it on the show? And then uh, I can't get Terrence McKenna off of my mind. I can't get DMT off of my mind. It's an experience that I sort of am fascinated by, but also am terrified by. I actually texted Tao earlier this week after reading it to tell him that I liked the uh, the series over at Vice. And then I said to him, I said, uh, you know, uh, via text, I said, have you done DMT? Have you seen uh, what Terrence McKenna and others describe as the, uh, what do they call them again? The, uh, the machine elves. <laughs> Apparently when you do DMT, like people, uh, you know, over multiple experiences, you know, this is reported by multiple people over multiple DMT experiences. See this, these, uh, machine elves that are like self dribbling basketballs. It's very hard to describe. This stuff eludes language as a rule. And it tends to recede from memory quickly in the way that dreams do. But I texted Tao, got no response, which is a little bit odd. Like, what the fuck? Don't leave me hanging, dude. I need to know this shit. Did you see the crocodiles or did you see the elves? I can deal with elves. But these uh, evil crocodiles on your chest, crushing you and then raping you. I don't want that. I prefer not to endure that, if at all possible. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So on that note, let me, uh, let me bring on Tim. <laughs> uh, bright young light in the New York publishing world, uh, an esteemed editor in the literary firmament. I had a great conversation with him, uh, and I'm really pleased that he agreed to take a moment to talk with me. Uh, we do not talk about in our conversation, uh, I believe, if I recall, uh, death, nor do we talk about uh, crocodiles. So you're in luck. Here he is, folks. This is Tim O'Connell. The way it breaks down is, you know, there's, there's Penguin Random House, and then there's the Knopf Doubleday Group, and then there's Vintage Anchor. So I'm like my my main hat is that is that vintage anchor in the editorial department, but I I publish on Pantheon and Knopf as well when I'm doing hardcovers. And how did so you it, how did you get into it? I stumbled into publishing uh, blindly, uh, uh, accidentally. Actually, I was I was a chef for the longest time. The perfect pre career to a, exactly to a publishing career, right? Well, I, I said once to some some folks that. You know, being a, a chef teaches you two things, uh, how to drink and how to bullshit. And, uh, you know, those are both very valuable when getting involved with publishing. So it actually did work out quite well. But um, I was working at a, at a, a restaurant in, in New York. I helped open a sushi bar. I was a, I was a sushi chef. And uh, That's a very particular kind of culinary skill. Yeah, I stumbled into that too. Um, I tend to, that's kind of how I tend to get involved in things is sort of, uh, if I'll learn of it and then if it piques my interest, I'll kind of go at it and then I'll go deeply into it. Um, but I was, I was living that lifestyle, which was like, you know, 15 hour days, six days a week. And I had just finished an MFA in poetry. So I had this whole intellectual side of my brain and creative side of my brain that you know, while sushi making is very creative, it wasn't quite, uh, you know, working with words or, or just thinking along the lines that publishing can offer. And uh, I was 29 at the time as well. So I was a little older and I was like, if I'm ever going to have an office-like job, like I should try it now. And I started applying for jobs in publishing that I really had no business doing. Like I'd see like senior production editor and I was like, I can do that. And I had no idea what it was. And I would get uh, no response from anyone. And finally, uh, I went to FSG's webpage and saw they had an internship program and wrote the director for that and said, you know, I have an MFA poetry. You know, I love your list. Uh, is there any chance I could I can intern for you guys? And she called me in to interview. And, you know, we, we had a really frank exchange because I actually thought I was going to try to work my way into academia. And I also didn't realize that in interviews, you shouldn't say what 
you're thinking of doing that's not what you're interviewing for. <laughs> and so I was kind of like, yeah, you know, I might, you know, I kind of want to do this. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Charles Wright and you guys published Charles Wright. And she sort of looked at me and was very gracious. She said, well, why don't you try it? You know, come in for three days, keep your, you know, your sushi job, keep doing your thing, but, but come in here in the mornings. And the second I started doing that, like I, I kind of went into the offices and started working for two editors there, uh, Lauren Stein and Paul Eli, and for their assistant, I was like, this is it. Like, this is what I want to do. Like, I can... What was it about it? What was it about office. it? Like, what... what well, is... their, their original offices, which, well, not their... I think they may have had one prior, but the offices I was in were on Union Square and, like, got out of the elevator and you turned the corner and there was the reception and behind it was just, like, a wall of Pulitzers and National Book Award, like, you know, sort of framed, uh, you know, awards. Instantly, I was like, well, this is, you know, smart place okay, to but be. So, wait a minute. What does a Pulitzer look like? I feel silly for asking. I don't know what that, I mean. <laughs> well, it was, it was just like the certificate, oh, you know, okay. it was, it wasn't like the actual thing, which come to think of it, I also don't know. Yeah, is, there, yeah, is there a statue? I feel like there should be a, st- <laughs> we need a statue to compete with the Oscars or something, you know? Um, and then I turned the corner, you get inside and then their, all their hallways were just bookcases you know, just lined with books and everyone had their, like, their offices and things were buzzing and dinging and, you know, people had their head down, you know, editing or talking. And it was a very, you know, it it just seemed like a very stimulating environment. And the group of interns that I had sort of been paired with, we got to do our work in this sort of central library. So it was like a round table also surrounded by like first editions and we were sitting there reading manuscripts or when we weren't like photocopying or running and doing things that were, you know, much more menial, but we would talk. And I actually got to be friends with all of those guys and still are. And it was just like, these are interesting people. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it felt like a step between the business world and academia. You know, it's like the round table almost reminded me a little bit of like workshop in some ways. And I just kind of was like, I got to find a way to do this. And uh, so I just kind of poured whatever I had into it. So I would show up like completely exhausted from, from a night basically out till three or whatever, having shift drinks after working and then like plonk myself down and read and, and write these reports on these books. And it was, it was exhausting, but it was just, it was liberating in a way. It was like hopeful, you know, like I never thought of myself that I would end up working uh in an office like culture and i was like you know it's not bad well it can be but like this one wasn't for you right exactly okay and and so what does that mean it sounds like you had a meaningful internship which is also a a little bit rare i feel like a lot of times internships for people can be like like what the fuck was that i just spent six months getting coffee no one really talked to me i didn't learn much and I think I think you know you got to bring to the table some energy as well, but it, it seems like they had some kind of structure and they were giving you things to do that actually stimulated you. Yeah, for sure. And I also I worked with uh, Lauren and Paul's assistant, a, a guy named Kevin Doughton, who's now an editor at Crown, and he and I got to be friends. Like we had a similar uh, sense of humor. I remember I was I was photocopying something, and. Uh, you know, you would flag manuscripts with these little, like, little thumb flags, and they would always get caught in the photocopier, <clears throat> and it would drive everyone crazy. And so I was in, this, in FSD at the time, also had their, their photocopying room was like a closet, so it would get real hot, 
everyone would be sort of like contained in this sort of like toner scented little world. <laughs> and uh, he came in and we were looking at this manuscript that had flags on it. And I just looked at him. And I was like, do you have a flag? And he was like, Eddie Izzard, you know, and I was like, yes. And then we started like riffing on Eddie Izzard for a little while. And I was just like, I made a connection with him. And so then I, I kind of told him actually, and he also made a connection with me because he would come and eat sushi, which was a great bargaining chip. I was like, come down to the bar and we'll, we'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's exactly what happened. And then I kind of was like, I really, I really want to do this. So he kind of became a bit of a, a mentor in a way. And the woman who started it, um, at the end of it, like called me into her office and she was like, so is this what you want to do? You know, you were confused, not confused, but you didn't really know if you wanted to do it when we first sat down. I was like, yes. And so slowly like different application opportunities started popping up. And I, uh, I also talked my way onto the FSG softball team. Not that I was any good at softball, it's a, it's but figuring a, it's that... A, it's a powerhouse from what I hear. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we would get crushed. It would be like 18 to nothing, and we'd go straight to the bar. Um, it was just like I you know, I figured I would meet people there in publishing, and that's exactly what happened, too. And again, I got really extremely fortunate, actually, because a, a publicist at Pantheon played on the team, and she used to be at FSG, and she brought a copy of Kevin Brockmeyer's The Brief History of the Dead, to one of the games and we were out at the bar after and I saw it and I was like, what is that book? It has this incredible iconic cover of these just, it's like a trench coat being held open by two hands with no body in it. I was like, what is that? And uh, she gave it to me and I read it. And then about two weeks later, the editor who published it needed an assistant. So I went into interview with him and normally, you know, you get in these interviews and they say, well, what are you reading? Or what do you like to read? And for some reason, like, this is the interview that, or the, the question that people stumble over and pause. And I had had that already happen to me once, but fortunately like a, a cover of the brief history of the dead or a copy of it was sitting on his floor. And I was like, I read that. <laughs> and he Perfect. looked at me he was like, what did you think? And I was like, I loved it, <laughs> which I did. It was genuine, but thank God, yeah. you know? So, so it was a lot of like, you know, there, you put yourself, anyone puts themselves in, in a position to, to have things like that happen. But, they really did line up. And then I've been at, at Vintage since. Like, I started working for uh, Edward Kastenmeier is his name. He's now our executive editor, and I was his assistant for the longest time. And I sort of slowly started building my own list uh, and grew out of it. And now they kind of let me do what I want, which God bless them. Wow. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's crazy how that works. And it's funny, too, that that particular question, like, what, what are you reading? What do you like? Why, why do people stumble over that? I stumble over that. It's like when people ask you what your favorite song is or something, but it's the, it's the most natural question for somebody to ask you in the context of a job interview for an editorial position in publishing, you know, and yet it's like, a, you know, for some reason it always catches people off guard, I find. Well, I just think there's, there's so many different things you can say, and you also know, like, the person you're talking to, especially in publishing, probably has read just about everything. Right. You know, my, my great 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 sort of flaw once when I was doing that as I was interviewing with an editor and she said you know the question like well what do you like to read and I, I blanked like really bad and I was like uh uh Hemingway <laughs> it was like the worst possible answer for this particular person and I was like and she's like oh well great well, great great like like what and I was like all of it <laughs> <laughs> and I walked out of that interview like, yeah, probably not gonna, probably not gonna get that one. Um, 
And, you know, it was probably for the best in some ways because you end up, when you're working with someone as an assistant or you're helping them build their list or editing their authors, it's really about, like, how close you guys are or how close you can be in terms of helping move something to a finished product. And you got to have some overlap. It's good to have, like, some distinct tastes so that you can sort of separate yourself from them if needed. But it's really important to kind of have a, a, a vision line up. So I guess that's why that question is so good because a it shows if you could if you're comfortable enough to say you know what, what a what, what might you might really like and not try to impress them and be you know just so they can get a sense of of your reading history right. and whether that's going to help you know do the books in the future okay so and just to go backwards just a bit when you were talking about the internship at fsg and you said you were sitting around this table with all the other interns and you were writing reports um, what does that mean? Like, were you doing coverage on books? Is this similar to what, like, an intern in the film industry might do? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'm not quite sure how it unfolds in the film industry, but it is a matter of, you know, anything that's acquired, and you know, starts with, with a whole host of people reading it. And sometimes when an editor is getting a ton of stuff, it helps to have somebody else just give, get a first read on it and write, like, a plot summary or something like that so that when they go to look at it, they can engage with it very quickly. Um, it just allows them to have some space. And also, I mean, they get these, you know, I didn't know it then, but the, the sheer amount of, of submissions, whether they're coming from agents or whether they're coming, you know, directly from authors is, is, is just, it's huge. Yeah. Well, that's so what I was going to say. It's like, so these are, you, you said these are books that have already been acquired, but like I was imagining that you're writing reports on submissions. Oh, no, these are submissions. Okay. In terms of, and and sometimes you would write, you know, if they would ask you to look at something that's already been acquired. I mean, I do it all the time with interns, actually, um, because I feel like any other set of eyes could catch something that I might miss. Um, or it might, you know, if I'm looking for a certain audience for a book, and I know, like, this particular intern has a particular amount of interest in something, I'll say, hey, could you could you look at this? Would you, would you buy this book? And then, you know, or have an assistant read it, or then maybe an associate editor. And then you sort of you work it up the chain all the way to the top. But for that stuff, it was primarily sort of, yeah, looking through whether it was slush file or whether it was, was other agent submissions. I mean, it's not, you know, I don't feel too bad in saying it. I don't think people think that interns aren't reading these things, but it's a very valuable part of, of the job. It's actually like, it's very much a training for, for what you're going to do down the line. Well, anyway. yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, do, like when you look back on the internship years, at, or I don't know, was it multiple years? Was it one year? Uh, whatever amount of time you spent there, like what was it working under like Lauren and, um, you know, the other editors there? What, like what were the things that you took away that when you, when you moved over to Pantheon, you felt like really served you? Well, you, you would recognize quickly if, if they or if you – had a passion for something and and the other thing too so you know being an intern and being put in front of editors you really admire and you've read something for them and they're like okay what is it and you know they're busy <laughs> so you're like uh and then you go and you have you know a couple minutes of this person's time to tell them exactly what this book is and that is invaluable. That's always the case. I mean, even now when I go to talk to, to Sonny or if I'm talking to, to Edward and I'm looking to buy a book, you know, they're going to say, like, all right, tell me what it is. And you've got to tell them. And you've got to kind of do it. And they can tell. The best thing about it all is that 
these folks have been doing it for a long time. Um, they know if you're excited or not. You know, they can they can see if you're really if this thing's taken hold simply by how well you you pitch it, um, and and how you speak about it. Well, no, because that's, so, that's I want to I want to stop you for a second because this is another thing that I find difficult, and I think a lot of people find difficult. In addition to like, what's your favorite book, <laughs> or whatever that question is, it's like what's your book about, and like pitching a book. Uh, you know, verbalizing an entire long form narrative or describing what it's about. This, uh, I find as, you know, when I talk to writers, we all sort of dread that question. So when you, right. when you're looking at it from edit an editorial perspective and, you know, uh, through the lens of deep experience, like a guy like Sonny, who's, you know, uh, been in the business for a long time and has had a lot of success, like, you know, in evaluating a pitch coming from you, you know, is, is it purely, or is it primarily driven by enthusiasm or is it like some sort of clarity? Like you can see the whole story. You can deliver that like five sentence summary that just sums it all up. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, how is it evaluated? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think, I think the clarity is, is certainly key. Um, because the beginning of any book's life, you know, from when it, you know, the acquisition is sort of the first step um, for the editor at least, and then for the house. So you're going to have to sit in front of a number of different people, whether that's marketing or publicity, you know, or other editors and be able to, to tell them that. And so, and in some cases you have to kind of cant it forward. So a marketing person will say, you know, you might, you might shift it to say what audience this is for. Like with Tao is a great example. Like one I, I was just going to say, cause like you, you acquired, we should let people know you acquired Taipei, um, the novel by Tao Lin. And, uh, you know, when I'm imagining like, okay, then you turn around and you've got to go verbally pitch that to somebody. That's not a book that like lends itself to like a really easy elevator pitch. And that's not to knock it. I'm just saying that like, you know, it's not a plot that you can like summarize really quickly unless you've really, uh, spent some time, you know, thinking about how to compress. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing with that too, is that I had 19 pages uh, with which to pitch it. Right, right, right. <laughs> it was it was bought off of the story that that Tao wrote for for Vice. Um, and what I did with that, you know, is I turned to like Tao's approach to language, which I was like, no one else is doing this, or if there are others doing it, they're doing it primarily because he's stuck to his guns for so long. And what is his approach? Do you know how to summarize that? You know, that's a great question. I mean. <laughs> There's, there is a, a, a sheer uh, kind of determination to explain exactly what's happening um, and, and leaving sort of the affect to, to the reader in some ways. And, and Taipei is a little different because I feel like he got – he opened his language up in that in a much more expressive way. I mean there are passages in there that read nothing like he's done in the past, maybe a little bit like bed, but, but that – he has got these just really expansive sentences as opposed to his more sort of declarative stuff. And that was part of my angle. I was like, listen, like this is going to draw more attention to him as a craftsman. Right. And of course with Tao too, I was, you know, I made two things. I made a packet of all of the attention that he had had and the agent equipped me quite well too, you know, but I had, I went with through the, and I, you Bill know, Clegg. yeah, who is, who is one of, if not, you know, one of the best in recognizing sort of, young fiction talent. So it was great when Tao got Bill to represent him, especially because I remember he made a list of things he wanted to do for that year. And I think one of them was 
get Bill Clegg to represent me. <laughs> and then he made it happen, uh, which is just like, so you, you know, you have someone like that who's, who says something and then does it. And, you know, before I also went to pitch, like Tao came into the office and I had never met him. I had, I had read him and I had, uh, was really struck by, uh, his whale poem, which I think everybody has sort of exposure to in his literary death match when he sort of reads it and he repeats, you know, the next night we ate whale, the next night we ate whale. <laughs> and at first coming from a poetry program, I was like, who the fuck is this dude? How dare he? And I was like, this is fucking brilliant. <laughs> right. And so I, I didn't know what to expect though from him as a person. And, you know, he came into the office and we sat down and, and a, he was just like a very sensitive guy and, and he was just, he just kept pointing to books like, Oh, Joy Williams. I love her. I've read that. Or this, you know, Laurie Moore. I love that. I read that. And I was like, he's read a lot. Yeah. So it made, it wasn't, he wasn't just this sort of trickster that sometimes people can present him as. He was just, he was just very serious about what he did. And he was also very serious about Taipei being like a bigger book for him. Um, so I just wanted it desperately. And I also really wanted it, um, for vintage contemporaries and for vintage because back, you know, I don't know how many decades ago, but vintage contemporaries was like Brett Easton Ellis and it was all of these sort of, it was new and daring voices. Um, and I was like, this, this guy, I want, I want to use this, this book to, to, I want to put it on that list with like determination. Like it's not, we're not doing it in paperback because, Oh, paperback isn't, you know, as, as serious as hardcover. It's, it's, it's meant to be in this form um, for its readership, you know, generally skewing younger, um, we could make it look really cool, which we ended up doing. Yeah, so that, a, that was good, the type really of thing. Good, it's a really good cover. Yeah, it's one of my favorite that I've ever that I've ever seen. Actually, I just it's you know we went through some drafts of them, and then and then this one came around, and I was just kind of like, yes, yeah. Um, well, well, and I want to talk to you because you know Tao has a particular. He's a great example of an author who. Um, has a you know kind of an uncanny knack for uh, being able to generate uh, publicity online, interest in his work, controversy. You know, I mean, it's all kind of well documented in the literary set. People are aware, and um, you know that gets that gets some attention, that draws eyeballs. But then on the flip side, as you said, uh, you know, he's very serious about his work and he's very well read. And I think that obviously has to be there. Uh, otherwise, it's you know the house of cards is going to fall. But as an editor, uh, when you're evaluating manuscripts that are coming in or you're getting pitched authors or you get 19 pages of, you know, a novel and a pitch or whatever from an agent, uh, like how important is it? How much of a factor is it when you see somebody who has this ability to generate interest online, to build community around his work and to generate excitement? You know, like that's obviously a, a, a bigger part of it in the digital age than it was previously or no? Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was going to say. And I mean, it's always been part of it with nonfiction. You know, everyone uses that word platform. Like, you have to have a platform. Like, who is this person? From where are they speaking? Um, and, you know, with what has taken place with how the Internet is sort of democratized, the way people can get their stuff out there, put their a persona or, in fact, themselves out there for people to see um, has, of course, brought that to, to fiction as well, and it probably was always there with fiction as well, but it, it certainly, you know, is more present when discussing a nonfiction book. But 
you know, with, with Tao, it was very important because we knew that there was going to be chatter on both sides of the fence. Um, there were going to be people who didn't like it and there were going to be people, be people who absolutely loved it. And he was going to be there in the middle sort of just retweeting or talking about and engaging with both sides of it. He doesn't shy away from that stuff, which I really, I really like, like he embraces it. And, and it's, it's very important. It was very important with him too, because you know, it's just, it's funny. You have these, you can have these huge authors and, you know, these huge novels go out into the world and they might not make a spark, you know, which is unfortunate, but you can have Tao who, you know, is going to no matter what. Right. And, and that, that was definitely in the back of my mind, um, you well, know, if not even more than in the back of my mind. Well, I was going to say, too, when it comes to like negative review, you know, quote unquote negative reviews or whatever, um, and, and engaging with both sides of it. You know, it, it, I think one thing that it reminds me of is the old uh, dictum, like any publicity is good publicity, right. uh, which I think he embraces uh, and maybe understands at a crude level. I think part of it, too, um, is that it just doesn't bother you know, him as much as it might others. I mean, you know, at least people are paying attention. I kind of have that attitude. I mean, you know, I mean, people are going to have their opinions, but uh, along those lines and speaking more broadly, you know, when you have people, even if they don't like a book, but they engage with it in a review in a really thorough way, like they really make efforts to explain why it didn't hit them right. Or they mm -hmm. have like a passionate, you know, reaction. Uh, I'm thinking of, I think it was Lydia Kiesling in the millions. Didn't she yep. write? She wrote yeah. like I think she wrote a review that wasn't necessarily positive, but might have done more good for the book in terms of generating interest and and you know having readers say, well, I want to find out what I think. You know what I'm yep. saying? So it's like you know a, gl a glowing review obviously feels good and everybody loves to get glowing reviews. But if somebody writes a review that was as thoughtful as hers and is, I mean, I think she's really uh, a really talented writer in her own right and, and reviewer. You know, I think that that can ultimately be positive for a book and 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 for a writer. Yeah, I, well, I, I think in the case of that, I mean, that was the review that always comes to mind because, you know, as an editor too, you get really invested in a project. You believe in it, you live with it for a year and then you, you put it out in the world. It's not certainly not to the same, you know, stake as the author, but as I read through it, I was like, she really thought about this yeah. and, you know, and, and then, yeah, like that drew so much traffic to it. And I feel like I don't, want to quote it exactly, but I feel like Teju Cole was like, this is the best negative review I've ever seen in terms right. of like making me want to go read this book, right. you know, and, and, you know, I ended up tweeting that out along with the review that ran the observer. And I was just sort of like two views of, of, of Talin, like I fall on the side of the observer, but both incredibly interesting. Yes. And, and so I, I actually had, you know, it's different if some, you know, the reviews you don't like are the ones that are passive in that they spend a lot of time either quoting from the book or summarizing it. Right. And then at the end we'll say like the sum up line, you know, that maybe appears as the blurb on the jacket or doesn't, you know, it's like you want people to be invested. Um, and everyone's, you know, there's so much information and there's like, you know, there's all this hyper awareness. So it's even more gratifying, you know, in today's day and age when someone slows down and says like, okay, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna dig in. Well, and yeah. she clearly did that. Yeah, well, she's she's whip smart, and uh, you know the other thing about reviews that bugs me is when you read this review, there's always this this tendency among uh, critics, I find, or some critics, to like tell you why they like a book, and then in like the last two or three paragraphs, like 
basically take apart and like guard their rear flank by saying there are some weaknesses and these are what they were. And they, and they, they kind of like pick the book apart at the end, which to me feels like uh, self-protective or something. And it leaves me, always leaves me feeling deflated. Like, well, what do you really think? Uh, I don't know if you understand what I'm, what I'm getting at, but um, I see that pattern play out, whether it's like, you know, usually it's in a positive view. That's not like super glowing. It's like, I liked it. This is what was great about it. And then in the last three paragraphs, it's like, but, you know, the characters are flat and, you know, the ending sucks, but I like it. <laughs> you know, you're so like, buy it anyway. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like, what, the, what am I supposed to think, you know? I think it's just, you know, anyone within any given amount of space of text, you have to try to get, uh, you know, as much thought down as possible. And, and very rarely does someone have, you know, 100% positive or 100% negative opinion right. of anything so they kind of you know it's, it's it's a bit of a balancing act i you know i, I don't think it's like there's like a a, a switch that's flipped or like okay now i have to go into my hedging mode um i just think it's it's someone you know depending on how deeply they've they've addressed it trying to to get in all their thoughts about it you know it's 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 reviews used to just drive sales so much and they still do but there are the, the venues for reviews are shifting, which is very interesting because now it's more blogs or it's, 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 you know, it's a podcast or it's, it's even a tweet. Um, yeah. Like, so, so what, what, what moves the needle? Does anything move the needle for, I mean, is the New York times the only thing that can really, I mean, does any of it is, is a positive review in the New York times, a guarantee of moving X amount of copies? Even it will it, still, yeah, it can still give it a, a, a significant bump. I mean, we had that great, uh, Dwight Gardner review, right? In, you know that was. I mean, I actually I have it framed sitting above my desk. For Taipei. Uh, yeah, it's it's also it's beautiful because the the image below it just you know it just says the Arch New York Times and then the, the the headline is a literary mind under the spell of drugs in a MacBook and then there's the text which is great in the picture of the book but beneath it is this image of I don't even know what it is because I cut it in half but it's like two arms lifting these batons up in the air with a a sort of chain link fence in front of it. And it just looks like someone's really reaching. And it was like, that's just, that's just perfect. So I think that a lot of eyes landed yeah. on that. And, and it was, you know, for, you know, Dwight has actually clearly read Tao and it has been a champion of him. And, um, it was, that was a big deal, you know, to, to have that, uh, there. So it definitely did push. And the other thing it does too, is like it, the the thing that really moves the needle always will be word of mouth, right? Like you want people telling people about it. You want booksellers hand selling it. Uh, whether if it's online, you want, you know, these sort of accruing, you know, reviews, uh, whether it be on Amazon or on Goodreads or, you know, so, so they help because they give more fuel to the fire. So when that landed here, you know, suddenly our marketing department's like, Oh shit, you know, this is, this is going to, you know, Dwight's going to say this and it's going to be in the, you know, print and online from the New York Times. So let's, let's figure out how we can best take advantage of it. You know, you have to be as nimble as you possibly can with books now, particularly, yeah. uh, particularly because you also were, were, were able to be, but so it, it does, it, it, but it, it's, it's not like nothing's automatic, but, you know, part of the benefit of having a whole house behind you is that, you have all these different minds thinking about, okay, how can we use this this thing to help us move more copies? Right. And, and in terms of, uh, you know, you, you, obviously you acquired the book, you were enthusiastic about it and championing it in-house, and then it went out. 
and uh, got, I think, you know, widely like a very positive critical reception, at least from what I gathered. Um, and, and when it was published, generated a lot of excitement. But like, you know, just as like a, you know, we're kind of using it as a, uh, as a sample of, of uh, you know, how the process works. Like, do you feel looking back like the book succeeded in the way that you hoped it would? Or did it, did it fall short? Did it exceed your expectations? Sales? Uh, it, it did everything I wanted it to do and, and, and maybe more. I mean, it was really a gratifying experience. It was great. And, and, you know, the, and as long as Tao was happy and Tao seemed, you know, pleased too. So that, that's always the first measure of like, is the author, uh, excited, you know, because they, you know, they have choices to make there, you know, Tao was probably, Tao was indeed being courted by other publishers. And I sort of laid out what I wanted to do. I actually wrote a letter, um, to Bill and Tao about, why I wanted to do it in paperback and why I thought that was right. And, uh, we had to have, this is great. And we had to have offers in by like, I think it was 12 noon and, you know, Bill called me and I'd had past business with Bill for a book called Lord of Misrule, which he sold me the, uh, paperback rights to on a Monday. And then I launched it on a Tuesday and on Wednesday it won the national book award. And that was like the first thing he had and I had done together. So it was a very, it was kind of a bonding experience. I, I also, very grateful to have worked with that but so he's like do you have an offer and i said where are you and he's like i'm on my way home and i said okay i'll meet you you know at the corner of you know fifth and and fifth near your house and, um i brought this letter down that i had uh stamped uh with the word offer i had this old rubber stamp kit <laughs> and so i stamped on the front of it offer put my letter in it and then sealed it with a, a hello kitty uh ink <laughs> stamp Figuring Tao would might find that interesting. Uh, also, <laughs> that was given to me by another author who who lives in Japan. Um, and I went down and I, and I handed it to Bill, and he's like, "I can tell you're excited about this." I was like, "I'm standing right in front of you," and I was like, "Just go and read it, and please read it to Tao." And because I knew I knew it was you know that there were people involved, and so I also then I knew I had to live up to everything I said, and and it all worked out. It all actually was like very much like kicking things off, and then. Uh, yeah, and the publication was great. I could, you know, for for a while, for that summer, it sort of it sort of owned like the headlines. Like it was everywhere you looked, uh, whether it be online or or in print review. And then also bookstores got behind it because it looked so damn good that it was on all the tables. You know, people were picking it up and, and looking at it. So uh, I was, you know, with the way that one town I first met, we talked about it. We talked about what he wanted to do, and then I laid out a plan for how I wanted to publish it. And then we both just sort of held to those plans, and it, it absolutely came together. So how many and how many copies when you sit down like in a paperback, you know, book like this, uh, in publishing? Like, what, what's the goal? Like, how, what, what? How do you put a metric on success, sales wise? Well, I mean, without saying too too much, uh, that will, you know, reveal our mysterious ways of acquiring books. Um, it, it, you know, you, you compare it to something, you think about it, you, you think about um, a demographic that you think will buy it. Uh, and then, you know, also you want to think about what do you want to pay for it? You know, you have to, because publishing is based on this sort of advanced system, you're sort of saying, okay, if we advance this, then we'll sell X amount of copies to earn that out. And then hopefully that happens because then the author is making royalties on it and then the house is also recouped to their investment. So that, 
it's a little more, it's different in paperback because you have a lower price point. And so with, when you have a hardcover and a paperback going out into the world, you have literally two products. And then, of course, the ebook, which has completely changed how people view this, this acquisition question because it, it has its own set of, of, of numbers. But you kind of, it's a gut. You know, I, I, and it's also, you get a, it's very strange. Like, um, when I am talking to the senior people here and I do want to buy something and they'll ask me what, what I'm, what I want to pay, you know, it, you'll, a number sometimes just sort of comes and you're just sort of like, this I feel is right. Like this I can do. And then you look at how many copies you got to get to meet that. And either they say you're crazy or they say, okay, or they say, revise it a little bit, which tends to be the case. But so okay, but, so so how many copies of uh, Taipei were you thinking you had to sell? Um, I think I put in around twenty five thousand or something along those lines and we sold more than that. Well that's great. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean I, I, I was I've been and and the other thing is is I think it's one of those books that it's going to sell for a long time. A, because of, of the package, but B, because I really feel like Tao did something. Like, you kind of, it, it took so much of the work he was doing prior and was like, put it into this, into this thing. Um, so I think when people are reading him, way down the line, I really think they will be that they'll come back um, to Taipei quite a bit. Right. So it's, it's nice. It has, you know, it's backlist well is the term that we would use for it. And, and are you going to do another book with him? Uh, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen anything from from Tao and Bill, but we, we, you know, I I feel very close to him. So of course, I would I want to continue to be his his publisher. He's going to do a book of tweets. He and Mira with um, uh, short flight, long drive. That's Mira Gonzalez. Yeah. So I figured that, and that was something where it was like, you know, Tao mentioned this to us, and we could do that, but. In theory, that book is probably better done by an indie or smaller press because it will get more attention from that list, right? Like it will be, it will stand tall on their list, and they'll put a lot behind it. And not to say we wouldn't do that here, but then again, you're thinking about it going up against this whole sweeping list of 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 novels or big nonfiction books. And you gotta. That's the other thing that's really interesting about what's happening in publishing now. I think is that. You know, sometimes a book like that is better suited to an indie because they're going to give it that sort of homegrown love that a big publisher would, of course, do and try to do, but it, you, you just never know. Well, and you've so, got there's just more there's just more books there's more things calling out for attention. You know. Yeah. No. Exactly. So I I'll, I can't wait to see it because I think it will be very funny. And then you know I know Tao is working on a novel actually, and uh, I know I know a little bit about it, but. What is not it? enough. Not enough to speak about. Okay. And, uh, and, and I got to imagine. I got to imagine just because you know he's got this young audience that like the young literary set pays attention. Um, you know that you must be getting hit with a lot. Are you getting hit with a lot of manuscripts that are sort of in that vein or seem like kind of like echoes of his work or whatever? I'll get I'll get pitch letters that that will you know compare things to Taipei for sure, um, but but not as much as you would as you would think, you know, it's, it's, I think people sort of, at least now, or, or you know, maybe always did, but they kind of, he's sort of a singular thing. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to compare a book to Taipei, uh, just because 
it, it is a definitely it's a different enterprise. You know, it's not a plot driven book. And I like like I am drawn to voice. Um, it's something that if you look at like the list of authors that I have, they're none of them are really doing the same thing, but they're they're all doing what they're doing in a very individual, um, identifiable way. And so I will, I'll react to that or I won't, you know, it's like when I'm buying something, you know, from thinking about buying something and I'm reading this manuscript, um, I tend to know pretty, pretty quickly, uh, if the language at least is speaking to me. And then that sort of draws me through and then a plot hook will come and then a plot hook will come. But with Tao, it's not so much of plot. It's just this language and, and thought really, which is just intriguing. And then it's also a time and place. Okay. And, uh, I want to I want to ask you about agents because you get a lot of you know you're an editor you talked about the volume that editors deal with um, whether it's coming from uh, from agents or it's coming in the slush pile or wh- however you know stuff comes at you these days um, and then you talk about an agent like Bill Clegg there are others that I could name uh, around town that have uh, you know a good list of authors have had a, you know their authors have had a lot of publishing success and so on and so forth like how much of an impact does your and be honest with me. <laughs> uh, how much of an impact? How much of an impact do you think your perception of a manuscript is influenced by the person who hands it to you? Um, there's, you know, of course, when somebody has done something for a long time and, and built up a reputation to 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 know to be known to champion a certain type of thing, um, you're going to respond because there are certain agents that like do only nonfiction and they do a certain type of nonfiction. So if they send you a book that falls in their wheelhouse, you definitely want to pay attention to it. And and likewise for fiction. I mean, I guess that the thing I would say is that there are, there are, you know, and I don't think this is, this is, you know, anything that's, that's controversial, but there are certain, definitely certain agents who, if they send me something, I will stop what I'm doing and say like, okay, like I should read this because this person has, um, a, you know, a great list and B, they can move things quickly. So should they choose to do so? And because, you know, you have to go through many hurdles to buy something. You have to get a lot of reads. You kind of, if you feel like something is coming in that might move quick and certain agents have, you know, reputations for doing that, then you got to get on it. So, it, there is there is certainly an influence there, but the other thing is too that I've bought books from agents who are just starting out, um, and sometimes the complete inverse is is the situation. You realize that you know these are hungry agents, like these are people trying to get that type of 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 list, and if they're sending you something and they're really excited about it, you should also look because it might be their best thing. Like I, you know, I bought a a book from uh, from an agent a while back. He's, the author's now with a different agent. Um, that the agent used to call my boss and um, pitch him stuff, and it would never it would just would never really work. And I would read the stuff, and it was it was good, and it would eventually maybe find a home somewhere else. But it was never quite right for us. And so eventually, you know, he he kind of was not frustrated, but realized that you know maybe he should sort of realign how he was doing it. And I started talking to him a lot. And so I said, well, you know, people here are busy. I'll take you out for a drink. So we went out and we talked and we clicked over both living in Austin. And and then he ended up sending me the best book he had, like clearly the best author he had in his roster and ended up buying it. So, 
What it's, was it? Uh, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. Okay. Um, which is Charles Yu's debut novel. Right. And, you know, he, and he's been somebody who I'm, you know, I get to be friends with my authors in this, in this way, and I'm extremely, extremely close with Charlie. Uh, actually, when I was out in L.A. not too long ago, I went and had dinner with him, and we're working on his next novel. But it was, you know, it was funny because it was something that, you know, I, it was it was cool, actually, because so much of, of publishing, too, is like this idea of, of, of relationships. You meet people, you talk, and, you know, you have lunch, or you have drinks, and you start to figure out if there is a connection or if a book is right for you. And I know it sounds like, or it can sound like, oh, this is, these people, the only reason this is getting done is because they know each other. That's not so much the case. It's because the agent knew the right editor to get the book in the hands of, right. if that makes any sense. Like no, that that's, so, that's a huge part of, of their great skill. And so when you do talk to these, like, you know, agents who have been doing it for a long time, they know, you know, and then, then, to their credit, too, you know, when I was first starting out, they didn't have to pay attention to me. Like, who was I, this, this assistant or, you know, just this, this kid who was trying to, to build his list? And a lot of senior agents were like, you want to go out to lunch? Sure, let's do it. Because they want to know. You know, you know maybe, maybe me and the inverse, there's going to be some day where they're going to want to send books to me. So it's, it's funny. I mean, that definitely exists. Like, with Bill, for sure. Like, I really do trust his... Uh, yeah, who, yeah. Who, who are some of the other big time agents or whatever that you when when you get something from them you you read right away? Uh, Julie Bear at at Bear Literary is, I think she also is very uh, plugged into to literary fiction. Uh, Eric Simonoff also at WME. Uh, he is, you know, he has just a, an incredible list of clients. Uh, there's a, a gentleman named Larry Weissman who does primarily nonfiction. And if he sends something, I will, I will certainly read it, um, as quickly as I can, cause he can move things quickly. Um, you know, but it's not, I'm getting stuff from just a, like a whole gamut of, you know, the kid selling his first book to somebody at the tip top. And if they pitch it right, I'll look quickly. Um, you know, it, it may, change in some ways you know everything i try to get a quick sense of and then i'll know if i have to like really clear the decks for the next two or three days as opposed to getting a sense of it and knowing like okay i'm going to come back to this at the weekend um so and like how much how much will you read like you know if you get a manuscript and you commit to at least evaluating it like how far like do you ever like quit after two pages are you ever just like okay no or do you always say to yourself i'm going to give myself you know i'm going to give this 30 pages and if i'm not into it by then i think it it it, it depends but i i like to see like when this is a weird thing to say but like when the callbacks are happening like when when the book starts to, when you start to see a plot when you start to see the 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 hinges starting to turn and whether they're if they're you know for lack of a better word turning in unexpected ways or turning in ways that keep you going or if, or if I've laughed, like another thing I really generally respond to and I'll laugh at things that aren't funny. Like they could be extremely dark, but I'll laugh at them because the author just made that happen. And that to me is interesting. Um, so I don't know if there's a, an exact threshold. I mean, you got to, I think you should read at least 50 pages of whatever you're looking at before you put it down. And it, and it may be more just because who knows, like maybe, 
that was throat clearing for the first six pages, and right. then something kicks in, and, and it would be a shame to to pass on something or to lose something just because you weren't quite patient enough. Well, I mean, there's ever, a ton you, of stuff. Have but. you ever passed on something that you look at, look back on and go, fuck, I shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't have passed on that one? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I try to forget that. No. <laughs> <laughs> block it out. As fast as possible. You know, no one, no one bats a thousand, and I'm sure there are. But, you know, most of the time if I pass on something, it's because I don't feel like I can publish it right. Like right. I don't have like that vision I had with, with Taipei where I was like, okay, you know, got, this, is how, this. this is what we're going to do. Um, and so it's like a disservice to the author and agent really to, to take something on just because it's like hot in the market. You know, like so everyone wants to buy it, then I better be in there. And then, you know, what if you get it and you're like, fuck, yeah. you know, like right. now because you're going to live with this thing for, you know, a year, two years, and then, and maybe more because it's, you know, it's like, it's like a, it's like a marriage, you know, in this way, like it is a relationship that you build with a person. So I, I tend to just, there's a lot of gut. It's really strange. Like you just sort of know, and then you kind of know like what we can do well or what we can't do well. You know, I have like a, a genuine interest in science fiction, you know, like Charlie, obviously a kind of safely is, is a nod to that, and I'm, I'm publishing a, a guy named Paolo Bacigalupi who did a book called The Wind-Up Girl, which was a sort of won every sci-fi award under the sun. Um, but, you know, those guys are, are they're, they're coming, right, you know, they're using sci-fi in this way to, 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 you know, it's not, for lack of a better term, like hard, super hard sci-fi that like Tor or Ace might do really, really well. Um, so you kind of got to respect the house you're in. I mean, vintage is really good because we've done so much different stuff. I mean, we published Chip Delaney. You know, we have we do have hard sci-fi. We published Philip K. Dick for the longest time, so it's there. But you gotta you gotta be honest to the to the work. Um, and if you're not, it just doesn't serve anybody in the right way. So, but is there a book out there? Like, did you pass on the art of fielding or something where you're like, shit? <laughs> I did not pass on the art of fielding. Um, <laughs> I try to think. I really, I I know there's one, and I know that if like if someone like an agent hears this podcast that sent it to me and I pass that, they're gonna be like, "You should have said it." <laughs> <laughs> Stop covering your bases. Um, God damn it! You know, I, there are there are books I offered on and didn't get that went other places, and I watched them thrive. Um, and I may not have ponied up as much money as somebody else. Like, uh, I tried to buy warm bodies by Isaac Marin, um, which, you know, this was right in the midst of like the zombie sort of craze, but he wrote this really like incredibly beautiful love story sort of using Romeo and Juliet as, as the template, but putting in this sort of like desolate world with a zombie as a lead character. And I was like, this is different. Yeah. And I really liked it. And I, my gut said one level and the agent got, you know, a different level and they went with that. And I was like, damn it. Should I, you know, I was like, should I have tried to push these folks around here for more money? Well, and then at the end of the day, you got to say like, you know, you, 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 you went with what you thought was right. And now you can watch it thrive elsewhere. Right. <laughs> now you can watch it go on to become a sensation. Yeah. Like uh, a huge movie. <laughs> 
Nothing so, big. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, but okay, let's talk about money because uh, you know there. Are, I'm always like I think as writers, we're always like fascinated by like who's the one, like who's the person who can say yes and like actually make make it rain. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because like you're an editor and you still have to turn around internally and hand it off to people and get approval, correct? Like you can't just green light the publication of a book on your own at this point. No. No, no, there's, so, there's so who definitely can, a... Who can? And when will you be able to? Well, you know, hopefully I'll be able to do that within a year or two. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I, it's, it's, uh, there's always, um, you know, there's the publisher, you know, whether, you know, there's Amicetti at Vintage or, or Sunny Meta or, or Sunny, you know, Sunny has uh, Tony Sharico working with him who also sort of is, is the CFO, I think is the, the term. But these, you know, there's, there's a brain trust um, and the good thing is, is that if you're excited enough, they'll still, they'll give you the funding to do it. You know, they might not give you, you know, the million dollars you want, but they'll give you enough, uh, I like to say like enough rope to hang yourself with. Right. If, and that, that works within, I mean, I feel like Knopf and, and, and Pantheon and Vintage are, 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 and this is, this happens elsewhere too, but they're special in that way. And that, you know, the, the acquisition process here is you get a bunch of reads and then you do really just sort of you sit and talk with Sonny and say like, listen, this is this is what I want to do, and um, you know he's gonna he's gonna help you walk through it, and and make you know make sure you're sort of making the right decision. So there's always there's always people everywhere, whatever you know, whether it's HarperCollins or SNS, like there's always people who are signing off on you buying something and. You know, it's always a group thing here too. Like we at Vintage too are also reading for Knopf editors upstairs, and likewise they're reading for us. So there's, and which is something I wouldn't want it any other way, because you kind of want these different opinions going in, um, and it helps you as you're trying to acquire something. It's it's like we were talking about before, like you're honing that vision. So by the time if you do get it, um, and it comes time to sit in this room, like we launch our books and we present them to everybody you know exactly what you're going to say and, you, and you've actually done a really good thing because people will come at it with critiques from all angles while you're trying to get it and then if it's gotten through those you know exactly how to speak to any stumbling block that might come up right so it's you know it's 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 from the top down but that's not to say that folks won't give you a chance which i have been very fortunate to experience here um, I mean, I started buying things really quickly, and I guess that might be that I was a little older when I landed, and it, it's much to my immediate boss's credit at the time, uh, Edward. You know, I was, like, doing – I had never answered a phone, like a, an office phone, like, or I hadn't used Outlook, and I hadn't really done office like things, like used, like, office like language. I didn't know any of that stuff, and so after about a year of doing it, I, like, learned all that. And then I went to him and I was like, listen, you know, I, I kind of want to, I want to do this. I want to, I want to try to make this a career for myself. So I would like to like take agents out and like talk to them and try to buy projects. And he was very cool. And he was just like, if you can get my work done, you can do what you want. And I was like, okay. You know, so then I just busted my ass even harder for him to like carve out the space for myself. And, uh, and they, they let me do it, which was really nice. Well, and, then, very... and what about like, you know, if you go out and you, you, um, you know, you're at these editorial meetings or whatever, you're talking to Sonny and you're, 
you're asking for money for a project that you're really enthusiastic about and you get it and then the thing bombs in the marketplace like uh, you know it, i always think of hollywood just because i'm in los angeles and um you know the old adage is that you don't get fired for what you say no to you get fired for what you say yes to <laughs> but is there is like are you on a short leash i mean like, how many strikes are you allowed in publishing before they're like dude you're cut off like <laughs> you know I don't know that yet. <laughs> I hope I'll, I don't I'll, find I'll, out. Yeah, I was going to say, I'll call, you, I'll call you in six months. We'll talk. I know. I'll be like, God, I've had a hit rock bottom. Um, you know, three bombs in a row. No, you know, it's. I think everyone sort of also understands, like, you've got to take your cuts. And you've got to be thick-skinned, like, as an editor. You've got to expect that not everything is going to be a huge commercial success. There might be other forms of validation just in, like, you know, it was critically praised or it won an award or, you know, the people of the house were behind it. Like, I've certainly seen things where, you know, everyone in the house believed one thing and then it went out and maybe it didn't perform quite as well. But, you know, everyone here, too, has been here for a long time. Um, some of the editors upstairs are, you know, well over, you know, 25, 30 years or whatever. They've all been around for a long time. And they know, you know, that, you can't you can't always predict success, but you have to take risks. Like if you don't, then you know why the fuck bother? It's just not exciting. Like you want you want to you want to live um, with this idea that you're publishing something that's that's new, and maybe you know maybe the the you know the commercial market isn't ready for that. But I think everyone still believes that we bought a book because we loved it and we published it because we loved it, and then let's just all across our fingers and, you know, promote some tweets. No, but, you know, like just do whatever we can for it to, to try to make it thrive. And if it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, I mean, the, the, this, you know, there's a lot of authors who I think, you know, you have, we kind of keep publishing, you know, you publish and we publish and we publish and then you, cause you love the writing and then you hope that one of those books breaks. Um, and then, then we have a situation where if you can get one, like, uh, you know, to win, you know, a huge award or one book does break out, then suddenly that whole backlist that has gone out in theory on the first run that's bombed suddenly Swells. takes on a whole new life. Suddenly you're like, oh, I, I got to go back and read this person. Right. And then, and you're like, and we have it. Yeah. You know, so, it's, <laughs> you know, which is great. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think there's, there's an understanding that you're going to take on a lot of projects but if you believe in it, um, you know, and, and, you know, again, because the acquisition process does involve a lot of other reads and other people did as well, um, then you're going to continue to be supported. I think it'd be different if, like, every project you brought to the table, everyone was like, no. And you're like, if I can't have this, I'm leaving. Right. And you did that, like, three or four times. People might be saying, like, you know, like, next time, you know, maybe... Maybe yeah, some other people yeah. should like the book. Don't, don't, let the, don't, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. So, okay, so uh, before I let you go, this is a question that has been uh, on my mind, um, and I want to ask because uh, I'm curious about it. And, I, you know, it's like the old, again, I'm going to draw the, the Hollywood parallel because I think there are, there are some parallels, but there's also some significant differences. I've heard it said in the past that, like, you know, publishing is still a gentleman's business and a gentlewoman's business, whereas Hollywood can be a little bit more cutthroat and... Uh, slimy or whatever but you know you're an editor in new york city which is still the epicenter of media uh and publishing and you know you're out there there's all these young writers um ambitious 
and they know that you sort of have the key to like, you know, getting them where they want to go. Like, do you ever have writers throw themselves at you? Like when you're out at bars or whatever, like, does that ever happen in the business? Like, are people getting laid because of this? Like, do, <laughs> is there any, like, well, like, it's like the old casting couch thing. I mean, I, it can be taken advantage of in unpleasant ways as well, but like, do you see that happening? We're definitely not cool enough for that. Um, <laughs> you know, they, we might go out for like a drink and, you know, have an intellectual conversation, but I think we're all pretty much, uh, but you've never been, you've never been at like a party and you're like, Oh yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm an editor at, uh, you know, vintage. I did Tao Lin's book. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone's just like really into you. That never happens. No, no. I mean, they might want to get their book published, but generally I'll, I'll direct them to an agent, but no, it's, it's, it's not, you know, there are, there is a certain amount of, what I did learn that there is a certain amount of, 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 of gravitas that comes with it because there is this, I think people do have a respect um, for the curation process that goes on. And, you know, that's, of course, that's actually, you know, that's changing too, because there's so many different ways for people to get their books out there. But, but there is, um, there's something about working with, with authors and, and working at a place that carries the sort of prestige that, that Knopf and Vintage do that I think people are just interested and, you know, I don't know if it would, I don't know if it would work. I think it would. Did, did you sleep with Tal Lin? On the record. <laughs> it was a great first meeting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I'm just, you know, I just think about that. I got to imagine at least somebody out there is leveraging their gatekeeping, you know, position to uh, increase, you know, enhance their dating life or something like that. But. Uh, a little bit of an oddball, but I think it's it's worth asking. So I appreciate you fielding it, and uh, I appreciate you taking an hour out of your day to talk with me. This has been really uh, great and informative, and I think my listeners are going to love uh, hearing from you. Well, thanks, Brad. I, I really enjoyed it. All right, folks, that's Tim O'Connell. Wasn't that great? He's an editor over at Vintage Anchor, Knopf, and Pantheon. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at Tim underscore O'Connell. Uh, you can fawn over his tweets in hopes that he might publish you. You can uh, you can fave him repeatedly in a somewhat creepy and obsessive manner in hopes that it might ingratiate you to him. Or you can just quietly observe his Twitter in a dignified manner. Uh, yeah, thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. How many times do I have to say this? There's a free app. It's the official app of this podcast, the Other People app. It's available wherever apps are available. Here's why you need it. It's the best way to listen. It's easy. It's the easiest way to listen. You, you download the app to your device, and then you don't have to do anything. New episodes automatically upload to your app. You get access to the most recent 50 episodes of this program for free. So you have them right there on your app, anywhere you go. You can download to listen offline if you don't have a Wi-Fi connection. And then, uh, best of all, if you want to stream the archives, all 300 episodes, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. It's very cheap, two bucks a month. Or if you want to do a six month deal, it's only five bucks. Or if you want to get access for a full year, guess how much it is? $9 for a year. That comes out to like 75 cents a month. Hopefully that's doable. So if you're into it, go sign up for premium, get the app. The app is free. And, uh, yeah, one of my weirder monologues, but, but, you know, those experiences it's, you know, the thing is, is that it's weird, but I think maybe life demands weird. You know what I'm saying? Maybe life, uh, maybe the fact that we don't talk about these kinds of things more often, that's weird. 
Maybe we need to have more conversations about uh, crocodiles and DMT and the pineal gland. Maybe we need to confront uh, the end with more, uh, you know, courage, honesty, emotional nudity. <laughs> I don't know. And uh, Terrence McKenna, you know, I, I admire the guy. He followed his, uh, he followed his nose. And he's just a, such a joy to listen to. So if you ever get a chance to hear him talk, there's stuff all over the internet, you know, speeches he gave and whatnot that you can download in a podcast fashion. I recommend that. I've recommended it before. And uh, you should read Tao Lin's stuff over advice.com on Terrence, this running series. It's very fascinating and a little bit disturbing. So, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Please remember that Pico Dea... No, Pico Dea Mirandola, not yet 31, died of an unidentified fever, and that William Butler Yeats died of heart failure. That's all for now. Thanks again to Tim O'Connell. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. I will be back again soon uh, with another episode. If you have done DMT and you've seen the uh, Machine Elves, please email me. I want to hear about this. If you've seen the Crocodiles, you can email me that too, though it might terrify me. Tao, I know you're listening. Text me back, dude. What the fuck? (laughs) 